Hello and welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast, your source for school-based occupational therapy tips, interviews, and professional development. Now, to get the conversation started, here is your host, Jason Davies. Class is officially in session. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 73 of the OT Schoolhouse podcast. My name is Jason. Thank you so much for joining us here today on the OT Schoolhouse podcast. Really appreciate you being here. This is going to be a fun one. We are talking with Deb Lunn, who is the owner of Two Fish Therapies down in Florida, if I remember right. And we're going to talk about the difference and similarities between ADHD and sensory processing disorders. So if you have been caught in the middle of a conversation trying to explain the differences between ADHD and sensory processing, you are in the right place. This is the podcast for you. We're going to talk about the differences in the DSM, the DSM-5, the manual that kind of outlines what a disorder is and kind of what the definitions of it are. And yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about evaluating how to determine whether we need to go in the direction of treating ADHD or treating sensory processing, and then even what that might look like, the treatment as well as the recommendations that we might provide to parents and teachers, all right? So you do not want to miss this. Again, this is Deb Lunn, and she is the owner of Two Fish Therapy. You can learn more about that at twofishtherapy.com, and she has a bunch of resources that you'll hear throughout this episode that she has compiled for us that you can get at the show notes for this episode, all right? So enjoy the episode. This is Deb Lund. Hi, Deb. Welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. I'm excited to have this conversation. This is a question that comes up a lot. I'm sure you've heard it many times, obviously, because we're, we're talking about it today. And that's kind of the difference between ADHD, sensory processing, and how you kind of see those differences. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Oh, thank you, Mia. Me too. I'm really excited. I do hear that question a lot. I bet. I think a lot of people do as well, teachers and probably pediatricians. Absolutely. And I I love that. You know, we already have a question a little bit down, a little bit, you know, in a few minutes, maybe 20 minutes or so. I'm going to actually ask you kind of that specific question is how do we explain how do we explain this to parents who might be wondering this and don't have a medical background? So we'll get into that in a little bit. But first, I want to give you an opportunity, Ashley, to share a little bit about yourself and your OT career and how you got to where you are today. So tell us about that. Well, I like from the time I was a kid, I always wanted to be in education. So I think originally I wanted to be a teacher or something. And then as I got older, I was just I think my parents really pressed upon me how important it is to get an education and have a good education. And going through my educational career, I saw so many intelligent people, like really smart folks who struggled so much to access education inside the box that we have as education, right? So, you know, in a lot of cases, quite frankly, and I think a lot of people would agree with me who experience this, and this is even neurotypical folks, like ed- education can actually be more of a catalyst. I mean, more of an obstacle than a catalyst to people's life success, right? In terms of if you have learning differences or if you don't fit within the style of that education. And although, so, so I always wanted to support access to learning. That's what I wanted to do. So I wanted to help people get through school. I wanted to help people do well in school. I wanted to help them be successful. I was going to be a teacher. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll be a psychologist, like a school-based psychologist. Found, got to on my undergrad 
double majored in psych, found out that it was a lot of testing and a lot of mental health. And that was not what I was looking for. <laughs> and then just through working, you know, with, with people with disabilities, like I worked in group homes and I worked in schools and I worked in the community. I did some independent living stuff with folks. I happened upon OT. And I applied for, I was like, this is perfect. Like, this is exactly what I want to do. I want to enable participation. I want to enable access in school systems. Like this is, you know, so that's how I got there. I applied and here I am like running a school-based therapy company <laughs> as an occupational therapist with speech paths and educational assistance and, you know, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it really sounds like you oh, found the right you know job. What? This also, you know what? I'm Canadian. Oh, yeah. So I went to McMaster University in Ontario. I'm from the East Coast of Canada. And I actually just after grad school packed up and drove here. <laughs> drove drove here being where? To Florida, Tampa, oh, wow. Florida, where I live now. Yeah. And I own this practice and I do all of this. So it's it's been a real adventure. <laughs> wow. So from Canada yeah. to Florida, what a change. Yeah. I mean, Definitely. Yeah. That was a big change. <laughs> yeah. In a, a lot more ways than just one. I mean, more than just yeah. the weather. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> All yeah. right. Well, actually, were your parents in education? You said that you were kind of instilled with education. Were they in education? No, or? they weren't in education, but I just, I, 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 it was just a big part of what they yeah. believed in. Like they just really wanted me to get an education so that I could do well for myself. Great. So it wasn't, it wasn't that it was just that the, I think it's very common for people, mm -hmm. you know, to, to hope that their children will get the best education that they can get, you know? So. Absolutely. All right. So um, I really like what you touched upon too, with how for some education can be a something to build up upon, but for other people mm -hmm. who might have a learning disability, it may be a little bit more tough. And like you, I think you said mm -hmm. it might be an inhibitor for some people. Yeah. Like an and, obstacle. Yeah. An obstacle. There we go. Great terminology. Yeah. We're going to get all into that, but I want to ask you one more question and because you kind of started to talk about it is, is your company. Oh. What does your company actually do? You mentioned that you have a school-based OT company. You also mentioned um, educational assistance. So tell us a little more. Yeah. So I currently own a company in St. Pete, Florida, and we go specifically into private schools right now to support them with their therapy services. So speech and OT. And then I also have educational assistants or reading specialists, learning specialists, educational specialists. So I have, I have a couple of tutors who work with me. One's Barton trained. The other one is uh, Linda Mood Bell trained. Mm, okay. And then I've also trained them in how to do some of the, the home programs that I would generally give parents. So they'll start their tutoring sessions with a little OT protocol, you know, an yeah. important movement protocol, uh -huh. and then they'll go into the rest of it. So we're kind of sharing, um, and make like enabling more of that access to the treatment plans, um, more, more frequency, intensity, duration, because they're seeing me and then they're seeing them a few times a week. So they get it more frequently through us, especially if the parents aren't able to on account of schedules or whatever the situation may be. That's really cool. I would love to see some sort of research done 
where there is that much incorporation between the OT and um, it it sounds like to me, your educational specialists might be something like we call them out here, RSP resource specialist teachers or something like that. Yes, exactly. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's awesome. So yeah. And and we'll direct people to, to your website so they can learn more about your website a little bit later, but let's jump into sensory processing and ADHD a little bit. Sounds great. Yeah. So To get started, let's start off with the ADHD side a little bit. And would you mind sharing with us a little background on ADHD? And for anyone who's not quite so sure about it that's listening, what it is. Okay. So ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And I I think like to explain it, I'm just going to go right into like differences in terms of our brain functioning. Okay. So we know that children who have Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder it, there, there's some issues with the neurotransmitters in that there's not enough dopamine and norepinephrine. So that's one, that's one area of difficulty. So there's some struggle with some focus there. And then there's some difficulty with the reward system and motivation associated with those things. And then there's a lot of great imaging now, you know, like science has come so far. So neuroimaging actually shows some abnormalities in the frontal regions of the brain, which is to be expected because, you know, those are the areas of the brain that are involved in executive functions, focus, tension, planning, self-monitoring, working memory, these type of things. So we know that children who have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder have brain differences and their behaviors present as struggling to focus, struggling to plan, struggling in those areas in which those brain, those brain differences are present. Gotcha. Okay. The next question okay. is is going to lead right into that. And ADHD, I, there's always been, I mean, this is ever since I was back in high school. I remember there was always like, is ADHD, are there different types of ADHD? Is ADD a thing? So right. I just want to quickly ask you a little bit about that as far as are there different types of ADHD? And if so, what are they? I think that's changed like as of recently, I'm, I don't know. I, I hate to say as of recently. I feel the older I get, the more years pass. You know, the <laughs> it's relative. Relative. Time is relative. <laughs> it's, relative. it's relative to my age, <laughs> which I really don't want to get into. Nope. <laughs> nope we're not um, going there on this podcast. <laughs> so now there are three types okay. that you can actually have. In terms of the DSM-5, there's mm-hmm. three different types. So there's the combined presentation and, and, and it's some combination of either being the inattentive type or being the hyperactive impulsivity type. And I'll give you some characteristics of that in a second, but just for you to understand how the diagnoses go, you can have a combined presentation, which would be the child would, or the, or the adult person would have to meet the criterion of both inattention and inattention and hyperactivity impulsivity. So there's a list of characteristics that come with that, or you can have predominantly inattentive presentation where the child struggles with just hyperactivity impulsivity, or you can have, um, no, sorry, with inattention struggles just predominantly within intention, or you can have predominantly hyperactive impulsive, which is they meet the criterion for hyperactivity um, and the impulsivity and, and impulsive over the, over the past six. And this is all happening over the past six months from which they're tested or being assessed. Okay. So it's really based upon what so they have to meet these criteria within six months of 
being in the doctor's office or whoever's doing the assessment. Gotcha. Okay. And then, so you started to say that you would also share with us a few of the behaviors that that might look like, um, depending on whether they're in the inattentive type or the, what was it? Hyperactivity impulsivity. So go ahead with that. So if they're inattentive, this is like directly from the DSM. So the diagnostic statistical manual Mm. that's used to, that creates criteria and provides diagnosis and diagnosis codes. So for the inattentive type, here are some characteristics. So they make careless mistakes or lack attention to detail, difficulty sustaining attention, doesn't seem to listen when spoken to, fails to follow through on tasks or instructions, exhibits poor organization, avoids or dislikes tasks requiring sustained mental effort, is easily distracted. So those are some criterion for inattentive type. Mm-hmm. For the hyperactivity impulsivity type, it's fidgets with or taps hands or feet and squirms in, in seats, leaves seats in situations where they should be remained seating or seated, has difficulty engaging in quiet, leisurely activity, is on the go or acts as if driven by a motor, talks excessively, blurts out answers has difficulty waiting their turn, interrupts or intrudes on others. Okay, so those are some of the symptoms required for a diagnosis. Yeah, and like you were saying earlier, it sounds like there's three different models, not models, but three different ways that a child can be diagnosed with ADHD. And so you might get mostly that inattentive, mostly the hyperactivity, impulsivity, or a mixture of the two, correct? Presentation, exactly. Great. All right, so... I couldn't help but think while you were mentioning all of those behaviors that it can sound like some of our kids also who might have a sensory processing disorder, maybe some of our kids with autism and (laughs) all right. So exactly right. So let's go ahead now and talk a little bit about the sensory processing side of it. I think as OTs, we inherently get a little more training in sensory processing than we do in ADHD, I think. Uh, Maybe that's different Mm -hmm. depending on what school you went to and what trainings you've taken. But what are some of the key behaviors that might be seen in a child with sensory processing disorder? So I think in terms of like behaviors associated with being able to attend for school, like access education and learning behaviors, very much the same as those characteristics for inattention and hyperactivity and impulsivity. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and, you know, considering where the processing breakdowns are, which we can get into, or we'll get into a little bit later when we start talking about SPD presentation and neuroimaging, but it makes so much sense that higher levels of the brain would be impacted, such as the areas in the frontal region, because there's a processing, or as Jane Ayers would describe it, like traffic jams in the, in the lower back regions, right? Mm-hmm. So if there's disruptions that affect efficiency and access to brain centers, then obviously these kids are going to struggle with attention and they're going to struggle with impulse control in these frontal lobe regions, so those behaviors are very common in the kiddos that we see. Gotcha. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And one thing that I always recall from like anatomy classes, and then it was reminded of it when I took some SI classes, 
was that you have the old brain and you have the newer brain. Right. And that old brain is like central located. And that's where all that sensory processing is really, that's where that traffic jam often is, is in the old brain. And so those signals can't get to the new brain, which is more the cortex and the frontal lobe, like what you were talking about, until they go through the old brain. Exactly. And so I think it's absolutely, I think you're, you're right on. And with the brain, it has to go through that old brain before it gets to the new brain. And so that's why you might see some of those similar behaviors. Yeah. I recently took a course actually with a woman who is, was a psychologist and I was taking it, trying to get a psychology perspective, just a well-rounded perspective on self-regulation. It was a Mm self-regulation course. I was looking for more like, I was thinking I was going to get more mindfulness, yoga, sort of like, I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, she was so well-versed in sensory processing. I was very impressed by that, that she went back to this old brain piece. And she actually talked about how, you know, Jean, who is the pioneer of sensory Mm -hmm. integration, she believed that 80% of our brain is involved in sorting, organizing, and storing sensory information. So when you think about there, it's involved in that much. So that much of the brain is actually receiving, sorting, organizing, and storing sensory information. It's just it makes so much sense, really, because everything we receive in terms of learning at some point comes in through a sense, mm-hmm. right? And then we organize those responses. We organize that information and process it and then create responses to it. So it's a really powerful perspective in terms of taking a bottom-up approach, for sure. Absolutely. And so, and, yeah. you know, our brain has to do that, whether or not we have a sensory processing disorder, whether we're a typical learner or whether we have ADHD. And it sounds like the difficulties might be similar in some cases that a student with ADHD or a student with sensory processing disorder might have. They might show similar disabilities. However, the processing within the brain is different. I think you mentioned like uh, dopamine and epinephrine mm-hmm. um, being yeah, more indicated with ADHD as opposed to sensory processing is very much in that old part of the brain, the brainstem, correct? Yeah, definitely. And the lower regions of the brain associated with visual, auditory, and somatosensory processing. This is what the imaging found. But most importantly, let me, I, I got ahead of myself. So let me just step back. So I think in terms of you were saying, what are the key behaviors in kids with sensory processing disorder? And I said, well, all of the inattentive uh, uh, and learning behaviors that I just described for attention deficit disorder, but also there's a need for sensory, a need to seek sensory input or avoid it. So there is some sort of association with sensory input in a kid who has a sensory processing disorder. If that isn't there, that can actually be a key feature for us to determine whether it's an ADHD issue, whether it's a higher brain region issue, whatever's going on, or whether it's rooted in sensory processing stuff. Stuff. Okay. Processing. <laughs> well, let's let's go into that a little bit more because I know you know it. So okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull it out of you okay. a little bit. Okay. Let's okay. kind of break down sensory a little bit. What might a student or a child be seeking or avoiding when it comes to tactile? 
Okay, so you want some specific behaviors of what they might be seeking or avoiding? Potentially, yeah. We'll go with tactile. Okay, yeah, sure, of course. Okay, so so kids who seek tactile input, this is the kid, okay, who you uh, have a difficult time setting them any, like we're thinking, if we're thinking uh, kindergarten to grade three, this child, you struggle with having him standing in a line, having him sit in circle, having him be anywhere close to somebody else because he's always touching, seeking, bumping, crashing, uh, or she bumping too hard, tagging too hard, seeking out this extra input all the time. Mm -hmm. Whereas the kid who is an avoider is going to get very upset from a tactile perspective. If they're in line and somebody just taps them gently, it's going to be, oh my goodness, you know, that he hit me, he hit me, you know, this over-responsiveness to the tactile input. So, and then over-responsiveness to clothing, to, to materials like play materials in school, especially in terms of like, glue slime sand all of these different textures yeah. and even pencils sometimes um, even pencil oh yeah definitely for sure yeah, yeah. all right and then what so about are- you you had on here and i wanted to talk about it was the the ocular motor concerns when it comes to sensory processing right and so i wanted to ask you about that one that, so that's huge so when i think that you know Oftentimes, ocular motor concerns are overlooked. I think that as OTs within the school system, and correct me if I'm wrong, like within like a public school system or within a school system, who else is considering a child's ocular motor skills? I don't know of anybody else who's pointing that out, right? And we know the vestibular system is wired to the, like, you know, our muscles, our muscles within our eyes are controlled by our vestibular system and our vestibular system also controls our postural activation, our body awareness. So when you're thinking about these kids who have sensory processing issues and they're rooted in vestibular difficulties, you see they then have a difficult time controlling their eye movements and the, the impact of not being able to control your eyes is tremendous when it comes to academics, particularly for what's important for, you know, administrators or for like the test givers in terms of like reading, writing, and math, because for reading, you need to be able to sustain visual attention in order to be able to read or to attend to anything really in school. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to sustain visual attention. You need to be able to track across the page for all of that work or across the room without losing visual attention. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to, your eyes need to be able to skip in a systematic like saccades, Mm -hmm. just type of eye movement from letter and letter to word to word with accuracy in order to be able to receive reading information, letter information, et cetera. You know, I'm just narrowing it down to those two. What else to think about? Yeah, I also think about um, copying from the board specifically, going from that far point to near point. Oh, yeah, divergence and convergence too. Like where your eyes, when you look up, your eyes naturally team out together. So your ability, your eyes' abilities to work together as a team. Mm-hmm. And then when you come in to look at your page, your eyes actually team in closer together. And whether or not those are working in an organized way affects your ability to do things like that. So, yeah. 
Great. And another term and another terminology or a term that I wanted to also ask you about was discrimination and what discrimination means in relationship to sensory processing. So your ability to discriminate is, and this is actually a pattern of sensory processing disorder as well, but your, your ability to discriminate is your ability to sense the subtle qualities, differences and sensory input. So let's say visual description, we were going to um, speak specifically to the sense of vision. An example of visual discrimination would be being able to differentiate between P and Q or B and D. Whereas if we were talking about auditory discrimination, we would be talking more about being able to discriminate between maybe cat and cap. So we're thinking of like phonics and phonemic awareness and these and listening and receiving instruction and being able to hear your name. Another type of discrimination is being able to sort of, it's like a foreground situation. So being able to hear your name being called when there's background noise going on behind. So if you're, if a child's on the playground and, and there's a lot of noise going on and the teacher is calling them or the teacher's giving a signal, like time to come in, you know, for that uh, child to be able to pick up that auditory cue and 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 respond in a timely fashion like the rest of the kids, it's it's a negative it negatively impacts their ability to be able to do that if they have issues with auditory discrimination. All right. And so you kind of started going down this route. So I'm just going to go with it is describing some of the sensory patterns that a child may exhibit. I think you mentioned that discrimination is actually one of them. So why don't you elaborate on maybe give that one the full name? I'm not sure if you said it or not, but and then go on and explain the other few. So there's there's three patterns and one of them is sensory discrimination disorder. And, you know, this can happen in, in all of your eight senses or any of your eight senses. Some of your senses may be more affected than other senses. It's the children present differently. Uh, each child is unique and their brains are unique and their, their experiences and the way they process information is, is unique. So, um, so there's sensory discrimination disorder. And like I said, that's the, where they're unable to distinguish subtle differences in sensory input and then give meaning to them. Okay. All right. Such as cap, cat, P and Q. Then there's also sensory modulation disorder, and that's when a child struggles or a person struggles to modulate the responses to sensory input in a functional, meaningful, and purposeful way. So the, for these kiddos, they have differences in the rate they receive the information or notice the input when it comes in, and then the, the intensity of their experiences are different. So we're, you know, and this affects their behaviors and the responses and how they respond to it. Mm-hmm. So these kids are categorized in over-responsive, under-responsive, or sensory seekers or cravers. So a child who is over-responsive is this kid who has a huge, intense experience associated with input, and the response is reflective of that, okay? And then a child, and not like, you know, with treatment where processing improves and responses improve, and that's the whole point, but I'm saying when there's an area of difficulty and there's a disorder and it's struggling, um, children are struggling, that their responses are impacted. Gotcha. 
And then if they're under responsive, they're actually the rate at which they're receiving the information is delayed compared to other children. And they're not, and the reaction times are delayed and they're not getting the intensity that they need in order to activate those responsives or activate that brain activity that's required for class. So these kids, you know, these are the kids that I think often go missed. Like they often go unidentified. I think over-responsiveness, people are more aware of and it's more spoken about, but under-responsiveness and passive. So these kids have, you know, poor strength, poor endurance, poor body control. They have, they're generally overall weak and they're a little bit slower or sluggish. They're very passive. They're easygoing to get Mm -hmm. along with. So they often slip under the radar. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of teachers, I'll hear from them. I don't know what's going on with this kid. He only does, he only does his work when he wants to do his work. You know, I think he's just lazy. He's way smarter than this. His output doesn't match how intelligent he could be doing. So, you know, this type of Mm -hmm. kid. So that's the, I I see that as the under-responsive kid, these kids that are just, yeah, not identified. I, I, I can think of that kid in my head. Yeah, I, I can think of yeah. that. Kid, yeah, and and I've also yeah. he's also the kid that in the classroom, like you're saying, isn't getting the attention. Even though he's probably the brightest kid in the classroom, he's exactly. not getting the attention that he may get otherwise because other students are more outward with their behaviors, I guess you could say, and you know, they're very much attend, they demand the attention based upon the behaviors that they exhibit. Definitely, for sure. And then there's the sensory seeker, the sensory craver, and those kids are still under responsive. So they're not getting the intensity that they need, but unlike the passive under responder, they're seeking out what they need. Their brain is continuously telling them, light me up. I need more input. I need to grow. I need, you know, we got to, you got to get me this. Input. If you want me to attend, I need to move. If you want me to listen, I need to move. You know, it's to always trying to get organized by seeking massive amounts of input. So that's, that's the seeker. And then there's the over-responder that is present. And then there's the over-responder who avoids situation. So they have such negative experiences with the cafeteria or, you know, such negative experiences with a lighting situation or maybe noise or a public situation that they avoid interacting or those situations, just the thought of it gives them anxiety. So they avoid those events or situations. Yeah. Stimuli. Yeah. Thanks. So those are basically the three. Oh, and then there's sensory based motor disorder. So that's sensory modulation disorder. And then there's sensory discrimination disorder. And then sensory-based motor disorder is actually two types. And one is postural disorder and one is dyspraxia. So postural disorder is, so these are obviously difficulties with motor function and motor output. So the way we receive, process, and respond to sensory information for executing motor responses is affected. Okay. Mm -hmm. So your postural disorder is that you have poor strength and it's rooted in like a core strength, your core strength, your endurance is poor, poor motor skills, poor bilateral skills. Here we get into more ocular motor skills are affected. Eye hands affected and they struggle to stabilize their body to do functional 
skills at school, whether it be sitting themselves up in a chair, sitting themselves up in line, or stabilizing their bodies in order to like hit a ball with a bat or play catch, etc. And then the other one is dyspraxia, which is, um, this is disorder in, there's a breakdown in the areas of motor planning. So coming up with an idea. So ideation part Mm -hmm. of motor planning, coming up with an idea for a motor plan and then sequencing and planning that and then executing that plan and evaluating it and changing it if it needs to be changed in order for you to do better the next time. Those are the three patterns of sensory processing disorder. And I wrote them down just so we can, it's sensory modulation disorder, sensory discrimination Mm -hmm. disorder, and then the sensory based motor disorder. And there are kind of some subcategories within each of those. Yes. (laughs) We're not going to review all of them. You said them. (laughs) Everyone, if if you want to go back, use that 30 second rewind button on your podcast and you can go back and and break it down onto which one. The Star Institute has a, is a great place to go if you're interested in getting information, like Lucy Miller. Um, mm-hmm. There's some great books I can talk about later on as well, too, some resources for sensory processing. But if, if you're interested in learning more about it, the Star Institute is a good, is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. I actually want to ask you a question. Based upon those, you mentioned three main types and then a few subtypes. How often would you say, or I don't know, just frequency, whatever, do you think that they often occur independently or do you think that they are often comorbid potentially where kids who might have a sensory based motor disorder also has a modulation or discrimination right. disorder? Definitely. So, you know, I took, there's, there's some great courses actually offered by a woman named Julia Harper. They're online, Julia Harper. And she, she owns a company called therapies, but and, and that's where I got a lot of my training in terms of how to do assessments specific to brain areas, like we were talking about in terms mm-hmm. of sensory processing and what it looks like. And then protocols associated with those to help improve processing. But, you know, based on that information and a lot of other information that, that I've received over the years, the idea is, is that if there's a modulation disorder, then that's that's happening at a lower level in the brain. So modulation disorder happens closer to the point of entry, we'll say, okay, hmm. of where the input's coming up through our central nervous system and our spinal cord. And then sensory-based motor disorders and then sensory discrimination disorders are happening at areas higher than that. So if you have a modulation disorder, you're going to have some patterns or some symptoms of affection, like affected areas above. So what's really interesting is that in these protocols and in the teaching that, that, that I got through those courses was that you would learn where to start treatment and how to treat that area of the brain and then prove and then move to the next area of the brain. So you have a systematic protocol approach in, in order to, isn't, yeah for treatment. So yes, they can become more. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you actually, I mean, it makes it sound more like it's not that they can be comorbid. It's that they, they yeah, it's more like they mm. often will be comorbid. Yes. Indeed, Especially yeah. if it's that lower brain, the sensory modulation, yeah. I think you said it was. So okay. if you assess a child and you find that they have a modulation disorder, then they're going to have difficulty. in. And a lot, yeah, I think a lot of kids who are identified and referred to us for sensory 
it's because they have some sort of a modulation. Just I mean, maybe that's wrong. I don't know. I think in my experience, I get motor referrals, but I get motor referrals more associated with fine motor skills than sensory based motor. A lot of teachers don't know sensory based motor. Yeah. And I also think, I also think when it comes to sensory um, referrals, a lot of times for teachers, it is the modulation aspect and the behaviors that are due to the modulation aspect that the teacher feels is inhibiting the student's learning as opposed to the motor side. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, we, we've got a good recap now or a good introduction to SPD and the different types as well as some ADHD. And so we're going to continue on here. And I want to ask you, in schools, we don't do, especially not OTs. I mean, we're not allowed to diagnose, but uh, even psychologists in the schools don't diagnose. They, they do a report, they do an evaluation, but they're not diagnosing. Who is the person that would typically diagnose a child with either ADHD, SPD, autism, or whatever it might be? I like, I, I don't know if that changes that varies state to state. I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure to be honest with you, but I know mm-hmm. here in Florida, it can be, it can be your pediatrician, honestly, or it can actually be, um, uh, and that's, what's so interesting to me is that it can go from being your pediatrician with, with, from what my family's report being a sort of questionnaire based subjective or objective sort of experiences based on the parents' reports to being a neuropsychologist who does a full gamut of evaluation or like a a psychoeducational psychologist who does a full gamut of learning, you know. So there's a variety of people who provide diagnosis for ADHD. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I think that's absolutely, I think that's pretty consistent here. I think now it's starting to go a little bit more above the pediatrician because I think they're just kind of that refer out here a little yes, bit. Definitely. I would always recommend, I think to a parent that if they feel that they need more information, I would definitely recommend reaching out to trying to get your pediatrician to refer you to a neuropsych, especially a neuropsych, even that's a psychologist, but definitely a neuropsych. Definitely. Neuropsych I think is the best neurobehavioral, if you can get somebody that's, that's, I think those, I've had the best success in terms of comprehensive assessments and like explaining to parents what's going on and them having an understanding of what's going on. I think neuropsychologists, neurobehavioral sort of, and, and, and I've had a lot of great psych ed psychologists as well, but I think you want to have a comprehensive evaluation. Right. Uh, I don't think uh, like, I think you kind of mentioned the pediatrician. They might just do a little subjective type of questionnaire. And yeah, yeah, I mean, great. You have a diagnosis, but what have you really learned from that subjective questionnaire? Right. Exactly. Totally. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to learn. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I know a lot of parents do a great job at, at trying to figure out what to learn through going to trainings that maybe we might go to and parents are doing it because their child has, has a diagnosis, which brings us actually to the next question. We just did a great review of ADHD and sensory processing, but we used a lot of jargon. We were talking about (laughs) epinephrine and and dopamine and (laughs) parts of the brain. When you're sitting in an IEP or you're, maybe it's not an IEP, maybe it's a private student. How do you go about explaining the difference between ADHD and sensory processing? Or I know sometimes we're not comparing, sometimes we're explaining it separately, but how do you explain that to a parent in a way that they understand? 
So I def- if I'm trying to explain the differences between the two, I definitely do talk about parts of that, that the difference is that there's processing happening in different parts of the brain and therefore we need different treatments and different type of therapies or interventions to support performance, right? And optimize brain growth and function. So I will talk a little bit about parts of the brain. If I think they're interested, you know, it really depends on the parent and you have to feel your parents out in terms of what kind of information they need. So I will talk about brain differences with some parents. I often, but I think the biggest piece is that children who have sensory processing disorder need sensory experiences and sensory interventions in order to support their attention. Whereas children who just have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder won't necessarily benefit from sensory experiences to support their attention because of these different areas of the brain that it's happening in. So it's important for us to know you know, do a good assessment and understand what's going on so that we can give the right interventions. And children with ADHD, you know, met, there's they're, they're prescribed medication and, and a lot of kids have had a lot of success with medication where that's not indicated for kids with sensory processing disorder unless it's comorbid. Com- gotcha. So yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it you is. Know, and I think as long as we stay in difficult to talk to people like it, and it's hard to explain like how you would explain it to them because it is very different for each parent. I think you have to be client centered in terms of who you're talking to. Like if a, if a, if a child's parent is a doctor, you know, you're going to come in and, and deliver a different message yeah. than maybe if this is their first experience and ever having a conversation about development or, you know, neuroanatomy or you know whatever yeah and in the same way also depending on how their child is presenting too i mean making it specific to the way that their child is presenting yeah all right so you actually started to talk a little bit about the assessment process in there and so i want to jump into that that evaluation process what how do you kind of go through assuming let's almost use an example if you get a child who someone says hey they're having difficulty with attention they may be seeking out some sensory stimuli. Where do you go from there? What's your brain start to, where, where does your brain start to take you as far as what you're going to evaluate? Well, I, I generally, what I generally do in my product, like with the company is I've created a lot of questionnaires and screening tools that go over various areas of development so I can hone in and I can better focus my lens for assessment. You know, so I get that feedback back and I identify by by that whether I see that there are sensory, uh, this is definitely within the area of sensory processing and that area of, of development and, and whether or not I feel that they need to see me first or if they if I should refer out to psych ed first depending on the symptoms and how the teachers fill out those questionnaires okay mm-hmm. so that's where I start is trying to figure out what the first point of access should be because I have that liberty because I'm in private schools so I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm working with the schools closely and they've been very some of my schools have been very very awesome about calling me to do the screening first as an OT and I'm the first point of access for these kiddos. And then we discuss, you know, what we're going to talk to the parents about next. So that's really quite lovely. So that's, that's, that's where we start. And then 
If there are sensory symptoms associated or if there's behaviors that the teacher is observing that look like they're rooted in, in sensory or reflective of seeking or avoiding or sensory-based motor, mm-hmm. et cetera, then I'll go in and there's a few assessments, you know, that, that, that we can choose from. So there's the sensory processing measure, which is there's one for home and there's one from school. That's really great to give you information in terms of if you're looking for a significant result for scoring, it will, it, it breaks down the various senses and social participation and motor planning, et cetera. It's a great tool. Mm. There's also the sensory profile, which is Winnie Dunn's. She does, she has a great, great tool that helps a lot with identifying modulation and regulation. And then I assess reflexes, primitive reflexes, because that's all within that same area of the brain. And it gives me an idea if mm. the processing is actually happening in those sensory uh, brainstem areas. Yeah, and if I can interrupt, I am so, I don't know how to say this. I have not taken any trainings on primitive reflexes. I know very, very tiny, I know very little about it. I actually had a guest on way back in episode like 32 maybe, way back when about it. And I've never actually got more into it, but I'm hearing so much about primitive reflexes and sensory being very, Combine the kind of like what you were just saying. So do you have any resources or any classes that you actually might recommend for primitive reflexes? There's quite a few courses. It depends on how comprehensive you want it. But you know gotcha. what I can do is I can put some together for you and you can put them in the comments of this section. You would say based on, because the thing, I think the thing that's heartbreaking for me, for us as OTs is that it's so, it can be so expensive, especially for new grads and whatnot, for us to get the education that's needed in order, like talk about inaccessibility, right? So it's trying to find these courses that give you what you need, considering your role in the school or what you're doing in the community or what your ambitions are for a career that are affordable for you. You know, so there's, there's a variety of different courses. There's one that's very comprehensive. There's another one through therapies, who is the woman I just spoke about, which is excellent. The thing that I like about her courses as well is that she breaks them up into modules. So the first module you'll take, I think it's like $200 or two to $300 or something. And it's just on sensory modulation. Then the next one's on regulation. Then the next one's on, and you can take them in pieces like that digest the information, learn about, but she also has a primitive reflexes that's specific to class, to, to school. Oh, interesting. All right. I'm so you to might be that. interested in that. Yeah. I can share that with you as well. Yeah. All right. I cut you off here, but uh, what other assessment tools do you use as well? So those are like, I, I do my sensory profiles, my sensory uh, processing measure, primitive reflexes, and then we're moving up into movement, right? So we're talking, I get, now I'm getting into sensory based motor and trying to get some more data to support that there's a motor issue happening. So then I start looking at using tools like the movement ABC or the bot. The, uh, do you use those ones? At, at Yeah. I mean, I'm very familiar with the bot. I don't use the berry as much, but that's because the psychologists tend to use it. And so instead I might use the RAVMA or like the DTVP in combination with something. You never use the RAVMA. It's very, it's very similar to the Barry. You have your visual spatial component, then you have your visual motor component, and then the motor coordination is different. It has a peg test, but it doesn't have the, the, the VMI has like where you stay in the lines, right? You have to basically trace the same line. 
Yeah, it doesn't have that one. Instead, it has a pegboard speed test, which I very rarely use. But oh, I okay. use the the I first know. two parts, kind of like the VMI. I feel like no one uses the entirety of VMI. They just use like two subtests no. of it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it depends on what your your yeah. your motivation is, right? And assessing everybody has their way. Yeah. <laughs> so that is so those those and then like some ocular motor assessments. So those are, and generally for ocular motor, what I do, although I've taken a lot of great courses for like astronaut training and, you know, like I love integrated listening. So like I've done a lot of different things that include a hand or visual motor integration and ocular motor skills and tracking that incorporate that multi-sensory piece. I generally do a screen and then talk to the family about seeing a developmental uh, Optometrist or ophthalmologist. Yeah. Because I just, that's, I want to make sure that there isn't something else going on, eye health wise, et cetera. So I'm very, very aware of my area of competency. Um, and I, I generally screen out, uh, I, I generally refer out or give the families, empower the families with the choice to do that with the information that I collected. Mm-hmm. If I, if I find that there's an ocular motor, concern there. Yeah. I do something similar. I, I often use just like a tennis ball and play some different games with the tennis ball to look at ocular motor skills mm-hmm. a little bit, whether it be, oh. well, and I know the bot has some tennis ball stuff built into it. If you go that yeah. far enough into the, mm-hmm. uh, I can't remember which subtest it is one of those subtests, but bilateral um, skills. yeah, I, I think it's bilateral. Yeah. Playing catch dribbling and throwing a ball yeah. at a target. So that'll give you yeah. a little bit, but I go a little bit further than just having them like toss the ball to themselves a little bit and just trying to focus on those eyes while they're playing right. with a ball game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's some sensory process or testing that you might do with sensory processing. Right. Do you do anything differently if you might think more of the ADHD side? So I th- ADHD, I generally, so... Generally, if I'm screening in the relationship that I have, like if there's nothing going on from a sensory, a motor, an ocular motor, I start thinking multidisciplinary team, family wants to find out what's going on. It's more rooted in psycho-emotional or maybe anxiety or those executive functions. But I say, you know, your first stop should be a neuropsychologist. And if she sends you back to me or we decide we have functional behaviors to happen, then come back to me and we'll work on it. But, you know start there and, and come back. So I agree, but yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, I mean, I think it's important. I don't know. I, Everybody has a different practice, right? Yeah, it's no, I think ourselves. it's important. And you know, I, I almost, I, I'm a big believer in that I think we need to have a psychoeducational evaluation to really have a good OT evaluation, at least upon in the schools. I think we really should have that learning testing that's going on and some of those other tests that are going on. So yeah, I think they do a lot of testing. I'm a strong believer in a multidisciplinary team. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think one discipline should be responsible for like, I do a lot of that within my company, but that's different than a school-based, like a, 
I'm, you know, it's different than like a public school system where there, yeah, psych ed is a very, very important, but so is OT. I mm-hmm. think, especially in terms of the, the younger ones, like when they're really little, a lot of developmental pieces that are so important go missed because we aren't there first or we, our perspective isn't considered right off the get go. Do you know what I'm saying? Where, Mm -hmm. so I've played with a lot of models where I, like I was mentioning earlier, we do the screening, we go in and decide who we're going to refer out to once we've done those fundamental developmental neurodevelopmental type of screens, you know? Absolutely. But yeah, totally. I think psych ed is so important. So is speech. So is PT. You know what I mean? Like it all has such a massive role in the kid and the kid's development and their, their progress and intervention. So once the child has been, um, I refer to psychology, or if I'm doing a screen, sometimes I'll do an assessment called the test of information processing skills. I don't know if you've heard about it. Nope. It's not very common, but it it actually tests a child's short-term, like their sensory memory, their working memory, and then their delayed recall for both visual and auditory. So you can see if there's a difficult time receiving, processing, and responding from those and whether there's differences in terms of their process, information processing skills with those two areas. And what was the name of that so one again? It's called the, it's called the TIPS. It's the Test of Information Processing Skills. So it's really, I really like it in terms of coming up with, in terms of like accessing new learning and, you know, our kiddos who are struggling to fall, like working memory is huge for our kids in terms of access and in terms of being successful and following instructions and, you know, being able to execute any sort of multiple step. Mm -hmm. So I like to have that information because it will show you if there's a statistical difference as well which is really valuable. So a ch- so if a child has stronger visual processing skills than auditory processing skills, that will be reflected in the assessment. And then you can then make recommendations in the classroom for how the child's accommodations should be or support should be more visual or more auditory to meet their learning style. So I love that. I, I like that test for that that type of information. And then maybe in terms of like, maybe the child has an auditory processing difficulty, or maybe the child needs to see a vision therapy, like a, you know, somebody, uh, an eye doctor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not going to, we're actually getting a little close to being toward the end of our time, which is perfectly fine. So we're going to skip ahead now just a little bit to some recommendations that you might provide to both a teacher and a parent based upon your outcomes. Um, I, we just don't have time to get into like solid treatment, but what are yeah. some recommendations that you would give to a parent and or a teacher based upon maybe a, we'll start with sensory processing disorder. What, what okay. recommendations might you give? Okay. So I think that always for both of them, I always start with how important, how much research there is everywhere and evidence to support this everywhere. Sleep, nutrition, exercise. For It doesn't matter if you have ADHD, if you have sensory processing disorder, the effect of a lack of sleep, poor nutrition, or not enough exercise on brain growth and neuroplasticity is 
everywhere. Nobody can deny that. So, you know, even if it's your sensory processing system that's affecting your sleep nutrition, you know, or if it's your, you know, executive functions, difficulties, biorhythms, whatever Mm. it is, start there, get those (laughs) nailed down. That is such an important foundation for any future change. So I definitely recommend that those are the first, first steps. All right. I just, (laughs) sorry, in my, in my mind, I just came up with, you know, how people come up with those like words to remember things, Uh, mnemonic devices. Is that what they're called? Mnemonic devices. (laughs) I just thought of um, Super Nintendo. It's often, or NES is what they call. And so I'm going to use NES as nutrition, exercise, sleep, NES. Oh, to have NES, (laughs) (laughs) nutrition, exercise, and sleep. That's the core. Yeah. It's so important. Those are so important. (laughs) And then, you know, if it's sensory based, you know, trying to get educated yourself as a parent or as a teacher and what that looks like, what the child's specific profile looks like, whether they're over-responsive, under-responsive, whether they have, so that you can then teach them and empower them with the education about themselves that they need in order to self-regulate and access and advocate for themselves. And access activities or environments that support brain growth and success, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So get getting educated and learning as much as you can by working with a professional that specializes. So whether that be like psych or whether that be OT, I think for, for OT, you know, we do a lot of interventions with alerting activities, calming activities, organizing activities. We use different tools and different strategies to support moving through those areas. So I have a question. I want, I, sorry, I, I just thought of a question I wanted to ask before we went too much further. And that was, do you know of any great resources for parents that when you say, hey, I think your student might have a sensory processing disorder, I think that your student might be over under underreacting to sensory stimuli. Do you have any particular resources that you might share with that parent, whether it be a book, a website? Yes. So the first, I, I love Lucy Jane Miller's book, Sensational Kids. Okay. Um, Sensational Kids. <laughs> for anyone who's, obviously this isn't a visual, but <laughs> Deb is right now reaching back to find her Sensational Kids book. book. <laughs> uh, Sensational Kids, Hope and Help for Children with Sensory Processing Disorder. That's awesome. It. That's a great book. It's very, it's very informative. And then the Out of Sync Child is another, I can give you a list as well, if you want to attach them to. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's a few great websites that I also recommend for information that I can send. Yeah. Just send it to me. Yeah. And when, for anyone listening, we can share it with no problem. Yeah. I'll put it up on the, on the show notes, which um, should be, well, it'll be otschoolhouse.com forward slash podcast and find the episode number for this episode. And you will be able to get all of the links and great stuff that we're talking about today. Great. So we'll go ahead and do that. I'm putting that together. All right. And then where were we? Oh yeah. Recommended (laughs) recommendations for parents and or teachers. Did you have a few more things? I don't know. So I always, I think that in terms of teachers too, like appreciating the magnitude of a sensory diet 
or incorporating movement breaks or sensory breaks to give those kids that input they need. And like teaching, teaching parents and children, teaching parents about children or therapists, teachers about children in terms, I think what's, I think sometimes teachers and parents don't realize that it's an accumulation of experiences or a lack thereof throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So the idea of a sensory diet is that you know, if a child is over responsive, we'll say if we're incorporating calming and organizing activities throughout the day, the chances of them experiencing overload becomes a lot less because we're helping them to organize and regulate the experiences that they're having. And when we provide, you know, supports like sound dampening earphones, or we put, you know, the shields over the lights in the classrooms. So those, what are those terrible blue, lights? Fluorescent shield, lights. Yeah, fluorescent lights. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) When we put the blue shields over top of the, we're actually supporting dampening the intensity of that input for them so that they, they sustain a regulated state and they have fewer intense experiences Mm -hmm. throughout the day. And that's the same with a child who's under responsive, who needs more. So if you can incorporate movement and exercise and alerting activities for that child, you're better able to keep them in a in a just right level, like an optimal performance level and not in a low state or have them over seeking and hopping up into like an, an, an overstimulated state. Gotcha. So that's what I take say for sensory processing for ADHD. I think those, those tools are more executive functions. So we're looking more at like exercise is still key, but using a lot of techniques for, regulation that are cognitive based and top down based. So we've got some great programs though coming out of OT, like zones of regulation. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids have emotional regulation difficulties that are rooted and and intertwined with sensory issues as well. So that's a great curriculum that has some awesome visuals for the classroom that helps kids to learn how to regulate their emotions and, and sensory systems. And a really big one too, I think is, and and it's so simple, is just like taking abstract terms that they use, like be a good listener (laughs) and making them concrete. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like I think it's a social thinking curriculum has Larry, the Larry's listening tool. And it's a boy. And it's basically, he teaches you through a poster and a whole book. There's, it's a part of the curriculum that like, what does it mean to be a good listener? A good listener listens with their eyes. They listen with their brain because they're thinking about what the person is saying. They listen. So taking those abstract things, making them very concrete and putting visual reminders on the wall are helpful for those kiddos who just need those, those ongoing reminders and the visuals are, are supportive there for them throughout the day to remind yeah. them of, of those things. Yeah. Great. And then Great. mindfulness and yoga and breathing. And there's a lot of strategies associated with regulation for that for kids. And then, and then obviously I don't recommend medication, not that I'm against medication, but that that's far outside job. of my area of competence. Like that's Agreed. not what I do. As an OT, so, um, mm-hmm. I, I have been in too many IEP meetings and I'm the same way. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I might ask a parent like what medication they're on, but that's specifically for my evaluation purposes, basically. Right. Just so I have it documented. But yeah. 
I cringe when I hear a teacher or an ABA therapist or a PT or anyone be like, uh, you know, maybe you should try. I can't even, that makes my stomach because that is so not within your realm of, but yeah, I know that people have to be very, very careful because, and another thing as well is like, as a parent, you like what your teacher, you're not in the classroom, right? Mm-hmm. You don't know what your child's doing from the time they lay to. So a teacher's recommendations to you and a teacher's perspective on how your kid is doing in school and what is going to support them carries a lot of weight in yep. a lot of cases. So you really have to be careful about what you're saying for sure. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's one thing to provide knowledge that there are options out there. It's another thing to to try to persuade someone or in some cases I've even like people like teachers, I've parents come to me saying that they they're at this point, they feel guilty because they haven't medicated their child because they're teachers. So. Oh yeah. On top of them. Yes. On top of them that, (laughs) that it would improve their life and you know, yeah. Wrong realm. Wrong realm. Go get your med. Go get your doctorate (laughs) degree if you want to do that. Yeah. (laughs) PhD. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's go ahead and actually, I think we're, I think we've given out, um, that's several strategies of what we can do. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. And as we do, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of share a little bit about where people can find more about you. And you've already shared so many resources. And we're going to, again, like we mentioned earlier, put some of those in the show notes. But any other res- or recommended resources that you might have where people can learn more about you, ADHD, and sensory processing? Okay. So, so I'll give you a list definitely of the resources that I talked about for sensory processing and for ADHD, and we'll put those in the notes. I would like to share that I'm getting ready to launch a variety of courses for teachers to begin with. So for classrooms, for teachers, and then later on for parents that are solution focused and action plan focused. So, so in my career in working so much with teachers, their number one complaint is that we're not taught this in school. Mm-hmm. So we spend so much time at the door as an OT struggling between what we can do with that five minutes with the teacher. <laughs> like, you know, when you're standing there and you're like, That's you're true. like, do I take this moment to educate them or do I just give them the tool and hope they're going to implement it? Or yep. do you know what I'm saying? That's smart. No, you're, you're like, absolutely right. You, know. you don't know what they don't know. Yeah. And you're like trying to get this information to them. And if you give them a handout, are they going to read it? Like yep. what this situation is. So, So um, in terms of improving accessibility for kiddos, neurotypical, neurodiverse, whatever, I am creating some some courses that are available and they're going to go through those areas of development, sensory, motor, and then executive functions. It's going to be based on what is it like we just talked about sensory and then it's going to talk about red flags if there's something going wrong and then it goes into some strategies and support. So I'm not expecting them to be therapists. But I'm offering education on why particular strategies and not strategies, but accommodations or yeah, 
kind of strategies. Yeah, strategies. Mm -hmm. So particular strategies or tools can actually be solutions because we're using them with these particular kids. So if if you're an OT and you're you're really solution-based and you're looking for a variety of tools and tricks and strategies and tips associated, I will give you a discount code if you want to as an occupant, because they're not designed for OTs particularly, they're designed for teachers and parents. So there'll be a discount code available for you. But if it's something that you think your teachers or your schools might be interested in, please follow me, share with your families, share with anybody who you think it might support. I would appreciate it so much. I just think there's such a massive disconnect between our professions and you know, as OTs, we're trying to do all of this with the children and then the teachers are trying to do something and we need to come together more to support each other and be on the same page with what we're doing. So, and once that change is made, oh, so much, so much more can be done in terms of the system, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And are yeah. you doing that through empowerment plans or two fish therapy? So I'm doing that through, I'm doing it through Two fish therapy, but empowerment plans is actually the tool. So for every course that the teacher takes, they're actually going to fill out their action plan as they're taking it. So as they're learning, empowerment plans is actually the name that I've given the plan that they're. So when they leave a course, they're going to know exactly what they're implementing in the classroom. So if we're talking about, uh, we're talking about sand dampening earphones. If we're talking about whatever the strategies are, uh, using auditory tricks, any technology, they're going to they're going to have it all listed out and ready to go. What they're going to implement when they leave that classroom. So, an empowerment plan is taking you from education to action, and it's Great. that's that's what it is. But it's not going to be the company. It's more of a tool. Gotcha. That's Fair enough. Courses. Gotcha. And so they can learn more about that at twofishtherapy.com. Yeah, at twofishtherapy. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so or much, my, Especially my social media outlets. So if you're interested, follow Two Fish on Instagram or follow Two Fish at Facebook. On Sounds good. Facebook. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll have that listed on the note page is as well. So we'll, we'll get you there. All right. Great. Well, Deb, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you for the, been about an hour now. It's been really great. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for coming on. No, oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. I'll get those resources care. to you. You too. Thank <laughs> yes. you. Yeah. Thank you for all the information on both ADHD and sensory processing. Thank you so much. No problem. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. And that is going to wrap up our episode on ADHD and sensory processing disorder. Again, another huge thank you to Deb for coming on the show and sharing with us the difference between the two, the similarities between the two, and then what she does based upon whether or not she's thinking sensory processing or ADHD. Again, thank you, whatever you are doing right now, if you're driving at the gym, whatever it might be. Thank you so much for joining me today on the OT Schoolhouse podcast. Until next time, take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. For more ways to help you and your students succeed right now, head on over to otschoolhouse.com. Until next time, class is dismissed.